You're listening to the April 1st edition of The Close-Up, the Film Society of Lincoln Center's weekly podcast series. This is Brian Brooks, Managing Editor of FilmLink.com. And this is Eugene Hernandez, Deputy Director of the Film Society. For this week's episode, we're featuring director Noah Baumbach, whose new film, While We're Young, is in theaters now. Baumbach has a long history with the Film Society of Lincoln Center, starting with his 1995 debut feature, Kicking and Screaming, which was a main slate selection in that year's New York Film Festival. Since then, we've welcomed the director to subsequent festivals to present The Squid and the Whale in 2005 and Margot at the Wedding in 2007. Most recently, his 2012 comedy, Francis Ha, an effervescent portrait of late 20s dancer Francis, played by Greta Gerwig, debuted at the 50th New York Film Festival, where it was an audience favorite. During the festival, Baumbach took the stage with legendary filmmaker Brian De Palma for a very special director's dialogue, moderated by Variety's Scott Foundas, during which they spoke at length about their different approaches to filmmaking. De Palma praised Baumbach's ability to create compelling character-driven films, while Baumbach praised De Palma's singular approach to editing and visual style. The two directors also shared theories on the risk of over-rehearsing, the importance of opening scenes, and the need for comic relief in all genres. But before that, we're going to begin this week's podcast with an event from this month here at the Film Society. In honor of Baumbach's new film, While We're Young, we presented a mini-retrospective entitled Growing Up Baumbach, which was a triple feature that began with Kicking and Screaming, followed by The Squid and the Whale, and concluded with a sneak preview of the new film. While We're Young stars Ben Stiller and Naomi Watts as a married couple in their 40s who connect with a younger couple, played by Adam Driver and Amanda Seyfried. The comedy has been hailed as the director's most accessible film. In fact, at a recent screening, the director joked, What you're about to see is the happiest I get. After the screening here at the Film Society, Baumbach joined New York Film Festival director Kent Jones for a Q&A. Let's go now to that conversation. Maybe for the benefit of, of people in the audience who, who don't understand it, you could explain Cookie Puss? Well, Cookie Puss was, a, I mean, it's explained in the movie, but it was yeah. a, car, uh, a, a commercial that Carvel... Uh, and maybe you could explain Carvel ice cream. Carvel was ice cream. Was a, Some of the worst ice cream. Yeah. yeah, and the guy, Tom Carvel, there's yeah. actually a lot of, like, we were in that car shooting that scene. There's a lot of Ben doing basically every character that Carvel <laughs> Uh, and doing Tom Carvel had a very deep voice. Tom Carvel. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and then Cookie Puss. It was all this. It always seemed like the same imprint the same. every cake, right? That's it was right. like the, the whale was just turned this way. The same Cookie Puss, yeah. Right. And, Fudgy um, the whale. Fudgy the whale. And then um, and Cookie Puss was sort of a standard. But then St. Patrick's Day, which is I guess which is today. Today, Ooh. so yeah. Cookie Opus would is relevant. <laughs> I don't know, is Carvel still around? Is I don't know. Anyway, but the Cookie Opus is probably, someone's having it right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so when you, 
were young and you conceived of this autobiographical trilogy? Was it, was, was it always your intention to end with a scene at Lincoln Center? <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> it's all deliberate. Yeah. It's, it, it, I, I'm guessing that you know you don't spend a lot of time going back and watching your films, but is it, it it's interesting to think about you know uh, the span of your your life and the span of your work in film. Think of all three films together. You know, how do they seem differently to you when you consider them now? Well, because I haven't seen them. I mean, this one obviously I've seen most recently because <laughs> I had to finish it um, uh, for right now. But um, for tonight. For tonight. Yeah. Well, for you know, roughly. I mean, I, I I don't. I haven't seen any of them since they came out. And uh, except Kicking and Screaming, I watched when when. Um, we did the DVD for Criterion. I watched it again. So I don't have a lot of perspective on it, except that it's stuff I did, and, you know, so I, I stand by it. Um, and I'm proud of the movies. I, 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 but I don't, in terms of like how they relate to one another, I, I'm not so sure, really. That's for somebody else to decide. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, this particular film is, is, you know, obviously reflecting a different moment in your life, and um, I'm just wondering about, you know, how you. Uh, uh, it, it's such a great rapport that you have with the actors in this movie. It's something really beautiful with all with all of them. And you know, um, did you start with casting Ben? Yeah, I had Ben in mind when I was writing it. I um, after Greenberg, I, I actually started writing this initially after Greenberg, and I was thinking, oh, it'd be nice to do something again with Ben and something, that part was a, was awfully different. That character is very different than Ben mm -hmm. uh, as a person and also Ben even as a kind of what you've seen Ben do before. And I loved, I loved his performance in that movie, but I felt like maybe there was a way to do something that felt sort of, that, that kind of used this, the Ben sort of comic iconography in a way that I could work it into my world and and so I was thinking of him while writing this which is not often the case um, and then after I actually ended up making Francis before I made this and then I worked with Adam Driver and I felt like casting Adam in a way kind of made sense of the movie to me because I, I you know it, it was I never want obviously it's, we're having fun with it but I also felt like I didn't ever want to sell Ben's character out I wanted you to understand why he'd fall for this guy, and I felt like having Adam Driver in that part made sense of that. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's something really, there's a really special quality to the performance, like a really super physical, go for broke thing, especially in, in, in uh, Naomi Watson's performance, maybe. Yeah, Naomi is, you know, she's great, and she's, mm -hmm. it's, it, I, I always thought she was really funny and not, she doesn't do a lot of, no. But I always felt there's humor in a lot of what she does. And yeah. I mean, starting with Mulholland Drive, there's a, there's a lot of humor in that performance, even though it's intense. And, um, and Huckabee, she was really funny. And, and so I, I um, you know, I, I always felt like you needed somebody when you go into that hip hop scene where you, you kind of would be surprised by it. I mean, in a, like that it wouldn't feel like, here we go, if it was a comedian in a kind of straight way, you'd kind of expect this is going to be funny. Mm -hmm. and, and in a way, it's more surprising with her, you know, even though, and, but she's, you know, 
you know, she's brilliant at it. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, it makes an interesting contrast with Adam Driver because he's so big and the, the whole lunch you know, with, the, with the big hugs going down on people, it's yeah. a very, you know. Yeah, yeah Adam, is, yeah, everything he does is interesting. Yeah. And, and, um, and we talked about how he was kind of like water. That was sort of our idea for him, that he both like, kind of like, could like slip between people, but he could also just engulf you, you know? He was sort of, you know, in that way he would, you know, hold his hands and, you know, he, you know, and he just like, like lives for that stuff. He just like loves to have a thing and, and then will surprise you a hundred times, you know, within, within that thing. Mm. I also have an idea that maybe there's a, um, it's a kind of a common um, narrative, I guess, uh, sort of self-righteous movies where people um, uncover something about somebody that they think is likable, and then you know the truth is revealed. But then what you're doing is you're kind of taking that apart and saying, you know, any, in a very surprising way. Right. Um. Right. <laughs> the, taking that tradition that is tried and true, and yeah, the lifetime channel tradition, <laughs> throwing it against the wall. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, I, I, I kind of arrived at that almost sort of in the same order that you see it in the movie. I kind of wrote Ben's sort of denunciation. Yeah, his, in his righteousness and everything and, and invested in it and then kind of came up to the point of where he has to sort of reveal Jamie to, to uh, Groden and everybody. and. It just felt like that that's what would probably happen, yeah. um, uh, whether I wanted it to or not. And I felt like, you know, but I also thought there was a kind of, I always sort of suspected there was like a dormant thriller running underneath this entire movie. And, you know, sometimes it would kind of rise to the surface and show itself and then you'd kind of knock it back down. And then, and because, you know, and then Ben's character, you know, because he's so invested in, you know, in, in what I think he doesn't quite know, but he, this sort of notion of discovery for him is so important, and he decides it's this, and and that for you know those minutes it could be maybe eight minutes or so it could be like a, a thriller. Right. You're discovering your inner David Fincher. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah although I didn't make it as yellow. <laughs> Ooh. Um, speaking of the color yellow, making movies yellow, did, was this shot on film? No, it was, it was shot on the Alexa. Yeah. Um, I guess also if I was my real inner Fincher, I would have had to make me a camera and, uh, <laughs> and shot on, on that. Right. Um, yeah. But it, it, how long have you been shooting on the Alexa? You shot Francis Ha? I shot Francis Ha on actually a Canon yeah. 5D, which is a kind of just consumer camera, right. and then um, Mistress, America. Mistress America, which has yet to be released. Was, yeah, will come after this, but it was shot just before this. Actually, um, I shot this, these last two on the Alexa. Yeah, how do you like it in contrast to film? I mean, it's a complicated thing. I mean, I I I like very much how these movies look. I yeah. um, you know, I, I, it's, it's, it's also, you know, film, the problem with film, I mean, when I made Margot, we shot, um, 
I shot Greenberg on film too, but Greenberg I color time digitally. Yeah. Margot I shot on film, and this is already like 2006 and seven with Harris, yeah. And we, at the time, people were still shooting on film more. You know, it was it was, you know, uh, there were more people shooting on film, but still most people were color timing digitally, mm -hmm. which is for people who don't know, you shoot on film and then you scan it and then you you color time it digitally and then you film it back out. So in a way, the sort of notion of film and digital, I feel like has been lost for quite some time yes. without it really even being discussed because we've been color, you know, once you're changing the color digitally, I feel like it's not, it's, you're already out of a photochemical. And the end product has been a DCP yeah, as yeah. opposed to a print. And then you have, yeah, and then now you have a DCP, which is, you know. But the, the Margot we color timed, um, on film, so and it took forever, and nobody they just they didn't have the infrastructure for it. And this is now, you know, a few years ago, um, and it from that point forward, it just makes it harder and harder. Certainly, if you don't have a, you know, huge budget to to do it on film. I mean, New York actually just closed the. Uh, we made a, we made a few film prints of while we were young, and Technicolor just close their film lab. So now, if you shoot on film in New York City, it's like shooting, you might as well be shooting on You've got to so, firm it out the Yeah, so you won't see your dailies for two or, th you know, three days, and it's like shooting, you know, if you're shooting somewhere remote and you have to get your, you know, the old days. So, I don't know, all this is to say, I feel like, in, in a way, I don't, I, I almost feel like I can't have an opinion anymore because I, you know, I'd love to be shooting on film and I would, I would, I'd prefer it. But, you know, I, I think, for a lot of reasons, it just makes it very difficult. That that said, I would like to shoot on film again before it really is done. Yeah. Take a question from the audience. A, a, a generally approving comment about the movie and a, a more pointed comment about the quote that opens the movie and was Noah nervous about you? Nervous for me in the beginning where you're like, oh no. <laughs> Reading. <Yeah. laughs> Really, um, yeah. Actually, whenever when we were mixing the movie, when you mix a movie, you have to like watch sections over and over again because you're like working on the sound and everything. And every time we were in the beginning of the movie, I kept I kept doing a character from the audience, just being like, "Oh God, really? We have to read this stupid play?" <laughs> and, yeah, I, I I don't know. I felt like it was. It was too good not to use, you know. I mean, I, I actually had I saw the performance that that I mean I don't know if anyone here is lucky enough to see uh, Wally Sean and Andre Gregory who um, did a performance of the Master Builder, which they've been doing for years. Uh, I think they work on these things, like you know, if you've seen you know the Vine uh, Forty Second Street that they you know, and then they, there was a film made of that and production. There was a film and also that Demi. yeah that Demi made of this production. Um, and I saw it in, you know, they do it in unlikely places. So I saw it in a townhouse in the West Village and it was just like, um, it was just so good. And it was Wally's trans translation. And I, when I heard that exchange, I was just like, and I, I'd already written the script. I'd like to say, oh, I've always been interested in Ibsen. And, <laughs> you know, this was my Ibsen, my conversation with Ibsen, but it wasn't. I, I just, um, you know, when I heard that exchange, I thought, well, that's great. And that sort of says what, and I like how dramatic it is and how, and, and then I made the connection with the Paul McCartney song, which I also like very much. Um, and, um, 
and probably more had in my head beforehand than, than the Ibsen. So, uh, yeah, they kind of bookend the movie. But thanks for worrying about me. <laughs> this person asked about the choice to use documentary filmmaking as the context for the film. <laughs> I think everybody since it was from the back oh, of the hall. They all, they all heard it, okay. Yeah, yeah, I was, <laughs> I was, I was like, um, you know, I, I really wanted to come up with a profession that would be visual and something that I could, you could see, and you could kind of see not only what they did, but also, you know, obviously they, they have to collaborate and go, go to a place, and it's a physical act in a way, which, um, so, um, that was my initial idea, was sort of, to, what, what would that be? And I came up with, I started thinking about documentary film in that way. Um, you know, but by choosing that, obviously, I was aware of all the sort of, it was, it was a, there was a lot that was baked into that, that idea and that profession and that, so I felt like there were arguments I had to kind of have and, 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 you know, but I, in a way, I feel like documentary is almost like, I think I'm using this wrong, but it's kind of like a MacGuffin in the movie. I mean, it isn't really about documentary. It's a movie about a marriage. I felt like my responsibility was, you know, to sort of tell the story of this marriage and resolve that to the point that I could resolve it. And, and all the other stuff was kind of there to, to bring kind of interesting and sort of fun elements into it and, you know, and to, and to, you know, have, bring up these sort of arguments and questions, but I, I wasn't going to be the one to try to answer them. The ethics of documentary. Yeah, in the back. This question was about Baumbach's relationship to Wes Anderson. The person wondered if his collaborations on Anderson's films influenced While We're Young. Well, I mean, Wes and I are very close. We have had a lot, I mean, I think, you know, he's got a, always been an influence on me, just, you know, I didn't, didn't think about anything particularly with this movie. I mean, you know, a lot of what I was doing in this movie, I think probably um, in terms of the camera and the score and the sort of vibe of it was kind of a continuation of things that I was exploring in Francis Ha, which is a movie I made before. Um, but, you know, I mean, Wes is, you know, we're, we're um, you know, it, it, it's like, you know, it's hard to say what the sort of, how your friends have an influence on you, if you're, you know, or family, you know, you're so close to these people. But that's, actually that raises another question, which is, you know, you've talked about filmmakers that you admire, and, you know, the common perception is that you see a film and then you sort of like create a film in its image, or you sort of model yourself after the filmmaker, but that doesn't, you know, I think that that's not really the way that it works for most people, and that um, it's filtered in all different kinds of mysterious ways. And so I, I wonder, you know, for you, you know, what does that mean to you? The the, the films that have um, used the term that's very common influenced you. Well, I remember when I I remember when I made um, Kicking and Screaming, which is my first movie, which. Um, which I guess was shown here, right? Yeah. yeah. Today, yeah. Um, <laughs> yay. Uh, um, I had so many ideas of what I wanted to do. I mean, I felt like, I, I mean, I was 24 when I made that movie, and I was like, 
you know, I like this kind of movie and this kind of movie, I, you know, and I'm gonna do, you know, and I really felt like I, and, and, and probably what works about the movie and what probably doesn't work about the movie is that it has all of that in there, you know, and, and it's, it's like bursting with influence and ideas and this is, I'm gonna do this, all these things, and I think what happens the more, you know, as you get, so you do it more, and you know, for, certainly for me, I, these things kind of start filtering in different ways, and you don't really think about it anymore. And like now, if I look at a movie before I'm about to shoot, it's usually for very specific reasons, for technical, you know, so this person did this this way, or like, we've got a party scene, what is, what are some good party scenes, you know, I'm, you know, I, I, I think a lot about like the, the um, in, in, I remember for Squid and the Whale, like the sort of major thing in my head was in All the President's Men, um, uh, Robert Redford had uh, like black socks with brown shoes and, and it, it kind of, you know, it's, it had a real impact. I just loved how that, you know, and, um, and I felt like that's kind of what I want to do in this movie. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and uh, and uh, no, but that's the kind of detail that yeah, actually those are the things that I end up and which are very hard to answer then in Q and A's or yeah, interviews. The black socks and the brown shoes. Yeah, because they, you know, of Alan Pakula. you get nervous titters from the audience. You know, and uh, um, and but that's sort of what it what it is now for me. And um, you know, whereas you know, yeah, when I was younger, it was it was it was everything. This person asked how the director decided to make Amanda Seyfried's character an ice cream maker. Well, I, th I think, um, I don't remember exactly, except that I think, you know, I mean, the, well, I thought that, you know, they were making things. I wanted them, they were, there was a kind of artisanal thing going on there, which is obviously a thing, and, uh, um, uh, and, uh, right? And, uh, I mean, in a way, with, with all of that stuff, I felt like I, I couldn't try to actually follow what's going on in Brooklyn right now, where I was going to, you know, by the time I drove up here for this Q&A, it would all be different. And, uh, so... I was sort of coming up with my own ideas of what might be. Like, I, I actually saw someone rollerblading today, and I thought, oh, that's maybe a good sign. Because I, I don't know if people, if people are rollerblading or not, but I felt like they're going to be. They were when I was a kid. And um, so that was sort of, I, I, we kind of, like, like Jamie and Darby's wardrobes, it's, uh, Jamie particularly's wardrobe is, is, was kind of influenced by the Eric Romer movie La Collection Is, which is a movie from the late 60s. And, cause, and, I, uh, and Adam kind of looks like uh, Patrick Bichot, yeah, who's in that movie, and you know, that sort of buttoning up to the top. And, you know, the, and um, so the ice cream kind of came out of that. It was like, you know, I mean, I, I've heard of people making ice cream. It's not like I, you know, Totally imagine that it came, it came to me in a dream. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, but another MacGuffin. Yeah, it's another MacGuffin. Well, the ice cream is a MacGuffin. That's probably I'm using it right. Yeah, that. there yeah. you go. Um, but um, yeah, but but yeah. Then I thought, well, let's you know, it would be 
you know, let's make it a plot point, which for me is a big thing to have a plot point. <laughs> the, the, the cross-cutting between Leslie's speech and the, the, the confrontation at the end had that whistleblower thriller kind of vibe. Well, I mean, I, it sort of starts, I guess, when Ben first sees the ice cream and says, you know, blow it up. You know, that's, um, you know. <laughs> well, I don't know that it, I mean, it is a bit of a shift, but I feel like it's still, for me anyway, it's still part of the, you know, it's, you know, Ben feels strongly about it and he's, you know, he's, he's there to, you know, and, and, and I, I did sort of think of Adam in that time as like a supervillain, you know, like, a, you know, with this cloak, you know, sort of wearing the way he wears it. And Adam totally went for that thing and the way they walk and he backs up and James Murphy's score there is like almost, it's almost like a Michael Mann movie for a second, you know. And I don't know, I just wanted to have fun with that. I felt like the movie could hold it and I felt like Ben, it, in Ben's head, this is, these are the stakes. These are the stakes. The stakes are like, now the Bakula movie, or you know, or, you know, the Insider, or one of these. You know, that this is really important to him, and and I felt like the movie, in a way, you know, was flexible, and it could go that direction. Um, you know, because also knowing what was going to come when he once they get inside the other room, and he presents, he lays it out for everybody. We're kind of arriving with a thud back to the movie that we maybe briefly, you know, left. <laughs> Yeah, a question about the casting of Adam Horowitz and did it have anything to do with him being an aging beastie boy? Well, I, Adam's a friend of mine and, 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 and I, I really, Adam had acted when he first, when he was younger and I really thought he was really good and he, um, and, and, I, and so I, I, I actually thought of him for Greenberg for the for part that Risa Fons played as his friend um, Ben's friend in Greenberg and I reached out to Adam and he, the timing wasn't right and he wasn't available and, and I just felt like if you know if he ever wanted to act again I was hoping it would be with me and and you know I, I was more aware later in casting it because I really cast him because I thought he'd be the best person for it um, uh, he's so dry and I mean what's amazing is how soft-spoken Adam is like the sound guy kept coming up to me and saying, "Can you ask him to speak up?" Which, um, and you know, I was thinking like he's so loud when he <laughs> performs, you know. Um, uh, but um, and the answer was no. I would not ask him to speak up. Um, but you know, he's. I think he's just terrific, and he's. He's so. There's something very moving about his performance, and I think you know the uh, the, the sort of resonance of then thinking, well, God. You know the Beastie Boys are middle age. You know, you know, and and Ad Rock has now got a kid. You know that that is there's poignance sort of baked into that. But I didn't think of it until later. Do a couple more. Yeah. So uh, speaking of the Guffins, uh, Hitchcock was known for using Cary Grant and Jimmy Stewart as his avatars on the film. Do you feel like Ben Stiller could be your avatar? Or even after that last question, could it be Adam Horvitz? Could you talk about that a little bit? Uh, My avatars. A Hitchcock question. You used my <laughs> question avatar and a question. Right. <laughs> <laughs> is, is Ben Stiller your Cary Grant? My 
Is he our character? Is he our character? <laughs> Did you see, uh, there was an Academy Awards where Ben dressed up as the Avatar blue thing, yeah. Um, I don't know, I haven't thought of it like that. I mean, I, you know, I think Ben, the thing I'll say about Ben, Adam, and, and I is that we all, I think, uh, we, we all grew up in, in New York and with creative parents, and I, and I think there's a, um, and roughly the same time, and I think there's a kind of, sensibility we share beyond whatever else are, that our friendship holds and I and so um, you know I, I do find them familiar in that way and so it, 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 when I think about people and to sort of be in my movies they, it feels like I, I can see it in a way that you know maybe I couldn't see it with is, is clearly yet with somebody else, and, and that's a nice thing, and it's a nice thing to sort of have friends that you can work with and kind of find ways to communicate what you're trying to communicate, you know, and, and um, you know, and it's so I, I, you know, I'm not sure you're using Avatar right, or I think I'm using MacGuffin wrong, you're using MacGuffin right, but I don't know, um, <laughs> but I don't know I would call them my Avatar, I did, but he, they're, you know, <laughs> They're, uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're awfully fun to work with. Yeah. This gentleman it laughed at the dialogue in your older films and the editing in your newer ones. <laughs> so, what's that about? <laughs> I remember showing Kicking and Screaming to somebody. It was actually one of the, um, the, the, I think it was one of the financiers of it. and. He said, um, it was like, you know, the first cut I showed, and he said, you know, you don't actually have to show people walk through the door. <laughs> and uh, I thought, but that's kind of what this movie's about, is about, you know, <laughs> walking through the door. But, um, but maybe that's what you're responding to, that those movies had a le more leisurely pace than, than maybe the last few have had. But I don't know. I mean, I kind of cut movies to the, my sort of inner rhythm and what feels right for the material, but also feels right to me in terms of the, you know, the storytelling. Um, you know, uh, I mean, I, in some ways, I think probably Francis or Margot or, you know, are cut sort of more aggressively than this one is. Um, uh, whatever that means. But it, the, the, you know, so I don't know. But I mean, I'm, you know, if you're laughing, that's, that's, that's good. <laughs> so you've already, you got another one ready? Mistress America. Mistress America. Which was yeah, at Sundance. Yeah. Coming out later in the year. And are you writing now? I'm writing now, yeah. Yeah, okay. So. <laughs> Sorry to disturb you from your writing process. <laughs> My yeah. pleasure. But uh, thanks for coming, and thank you all thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. You're listening to The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center. The Film Society app, now available for iOS, iPhone, and iPad, and Android devices, lets you browse and discover our year-round programs and films, get the latest ticketing alerts and breaking festival news, share with friends via social media, create your own custom schedule, and more. Download the Film Society app for free at iTunes and Google Play. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. And now, back to our program.
We'll go now to Noah Baumbach's conversation with Brian De Palma from the 50th New York Film Festival. Baumbach's film Francis Ha and De Palma's film Passion were both included in the main slate that year. Enjoy. So, gentlemen, um, maybe the, the right place to start is by talking a little bit about uh, how it is that you two know each other. Take it away. <laughs> we were at a, uh, can we say it was a birthday party? Or should we? Do? Okay, it was, it was uh, um, Paul Schrader's 50th birthday party, I think, and sometime in the 90s. Uh, and uh, um, I, was there with, a, um, I didn't know Paul Schrader or anyone there, but I was there with um, my girlfriend at the time and she seemed to know everybody. So we, I went with her and I think I was feeling kind of nervous there and drank a considerable amount and then saw Brian De Palma sitting in a chair and then just sat down next to him and then just unleashed my, I just, bas I think I just basically just named all his movies as, as if that somehow, <laughs> Was, was actual knowledge or anything interesting. Um, but I remember Brian just stopped me at a certain point and said, get to know your rabbit. <laughs> you mentioned get to know your rabbit? I did, yes, oh. you, and you silenced me immediately. Uh, he was like, <laughs> but. Uh, I don't think they know about get to know your rabbit. Brian, get to know your rabbit. Some Smothers Brothers fans out there. Yeah. I want to see a raise of hands of the people that saw Get to Know Your Rabbit. They're there. Oh. It's on YouTube. Um, I remember none, none of this, uh, Noah. Yeah. <laughs> so. But, well, what, but what I remember is you were about to make Mr. Jealousy? Yeah. And I'd seen his earlier movies, and I quite liked them. And I, he, you, you were living in the village? Yep. And I live in the village, so we started hanging out together, and he tried to talk me into being in the movie. Yeah, I wanted you to play the therapist in the movie. And Thank Brian you. said, I've even turned down Woody Allen. Exactly. <laughs> I didn't want to make a fool of myself. So he cast... Peter Bogdanovich. And started a long friendship with Peter as well off of that, so you gave me that gift as well. The, the, uh, and then we, we stayed in some touch, but then we, we were actually just, we didn't see as much of each other, and then a few years later, I, was, I arrived in my hotel room in Toronto when the Squid and the Whale was there, and the light was already blinking on my phone, and I picked up the phone and, and listened to the message, and it was Brian saying he'd seen the movie and, uh, and liked it, and what was I doing? Exactly. And so I, I think from that point on, we've been inseparable. Yeah, yeah, and, exactly. Well, and I know when we were talking a little bit about this event, you, you said that uh, you felt that, that, Noah, that you and Brian had a kind of a similar idea of cinema or you know that you you know shared a lot of the same ideas about what movies should be um, Can you maybe elaborate on that a little bit and and you know just sort of how you've you know come to exchange ideas about movies in the 
the years since those initial meetings. Well, what, one thing also even to back up, which I wanted to, to say is, because my, my parents loved Brian's movies and were seriously intellectualized them on top of just enjoying them. I think, I think my mother was very disturbed when she saw Obsession and got very angry at my father. Um, and may, may have led to their divorce. <laughs> uh, uh, and, but they... <laughs> and the squid and the whale. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes, and the squid and the whale. <laughs> and me on the stage. Uh, and uh, so, but I, I, I knew about Brian's movies before I really had yeah. seen them, and I knew them as these kind of weird, creepy, sexy things that were somehow, I, when I would get to be older, I could... I could see and then uh, and then when I saw them I loved them and then I but I think what's interesting then is as I since I've become a filmmaker I actually I, I can't intellectualize movies anymore I feel like it's it's I, I come at it from a much more just either practical or emotional uh, uh, place and I discovered very quickly. I think probably I even started getting to some analysis that night at the party that Brian just dismissed. That, but that Brian does not look at his movies that way either. And and I think a lot of what we talk about when we you know, we get together and talk about movies, our movies or other people's movies, is it, it's very it's very untheoretical. It's it's not we don't come at it from a critical standpoint. It's much more from some other place. Yeah. <laughs> well, Brian, maybe you should talk a little bit about, I mean, obviously, you know, Noah, talk about uh, at least knowing about, if not seeing your films at a, an impressionable age. Who were some of the, what were some of the films and some of the filmmakers that were um, influential on you when you were discovering cinema? Oh, that's a very tired question, Scott. <laughs> Other than Alfred Hitchcock. Yes, okay. Now, what I was going to say, I think what, uh, the, uh, the, why we get along so much is because we approach things so differently. You know, uh, you know uh, Noah you know, builds these character pieces, uh, and I'm fascinated by movies that are built by the characters because it's something that I don't... I approach completely the opposite direction, I'm looking for plot and visual structure, and then I gotta plug the characters in, except when I go out and make a movie that's, that's been written by somebody else that has all the characters, you know, like Scarface or Carlito's Way, and then I just let, oh, I have the characters now, now I can impose some kind of cinematic uh, storytelling on it. But I'm fascinated by, you know, directors like Noah who generate whole stories starting with the characters. But couldn't one say that um, your early films like Greetings and Hi Mom were also those kind of films that were rooted, certainly, let's say, in ideas and uh, yeah, things that were going like on in society. Ideas. They're sort of filmic ideas, and uh, you know, they're not really based on you know, creating a character and then building the story from how the character interacts with the other characters. You know, because when I see a, when I see a character movie, I see a two-shot in a restaurant, and I suddenly start getting very sleepy. 
because I see that two shot and I see that over the shoulder and then I go, oh God, is this boring? Uh, but of course, you need scenes like that in order to build character relationships. I'm very aware of it, but to me, because I think in all these kind of very uh, developed cinematic terms, it's not very challenging to me. You know, the worst thing I can say about a director is he covered the scene. <laughs> Otherwise, he got the two actors there, he shot 27 different shots of them, and then they put them together in an editing room. Any idiot can do that, you know. So when a director really thinks about how to conceptualize the scene, how to visually, you know, underscore what the act, emotion and the actors are doing, then I, then I get awake. Well, and for you, Noah, were Brian's films a reference for visual storytelling? Is that something that, you know, as Brian is saying, character uh, storytelling doesn't come as naturally to him or isn't his primary interest, did, did you look to his films for visual ideas or ways of telling stories visually? Well, I, I mean, I love how Brian approaches his movies visually. I mean, the, I mean, the things that he's known for is his, the long shots, the split screen, the, the, the I, 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 you know, I'm in awe of that when I'm watching, you know, his movies. I have, there's, you know, the, the museum scene in Dress to Kill or the, the scene in the mall in, in Body Double. I mean, those things like play on in my head. I have them just almost, they're, um, uh, and there's, there's really, there's, there's pieces of those from all, pretty much all his movies that I have sort of just in there that I can, I'll reflect on at different times, but they're not things that I feel that I can, that I can imitate or even would want to imitate because I don't, I, I, I don't, the, the, the things that I tend to be building in, the, in terms of these movies, I just, I, they wouldn't feel right, I don't think. I mean, but, um, but I'd love to if I could. I mean, it'd be great to somehow stumble into a thing and think I could do this in a one take and, you know, with a steady cam or something would be amazing or I could go, go through the wall and, um, you know, or, or, or whatever. But then, I mean, when I like when I saw I saw Passion for the first time yesterday, I guess it was, and and you know, it's like when when the split screen starts in that movie and that that ballet begins, and you, you have all these characters, the the performers in the ballet, and Nomi Rapace's eyes, and Rachel McAdams—they're all like confronting you. They're looking at you, and the music comes in, and it's just like it's total cinema. And, and it's something that only Brian can do that way. And, um, and I feel just like lifted when I see those things. But it's, it is, as Brian says, I think something that we, I think essentially we feel similarly about movies and about movie making, but we come at it in entirely different ways. Well, it's funny because we've been talking about getting you two on stage together for a couple of years now. And the fact that you both have films in the festival this year seemed like a fitting occasion. But, you know, the more I've been thinking about Passion and Francis Ha, these two movies do actually have some things in common, perhaps not stylistically, but you could say uh, they're, both, uh, they're both stories about two women who perhaps are in love with each other, not expressly stated, but implied. Uh, certainly they're about, a, the central character in each film is a young woman trying to find her place in the world, uh, uh, dealing with career issues and so forth. 
Um, I, do you feel that uh, e even though you don't necessarily approach filmmaking in the same way that you're interested by some of the same kinds of stories or characters or things that you want to explore in filmmaking? Well, I think we're both interested in women. <laughs> Beautiful women. Yeah. Well, that... <laughs> well, perhaps, you, actually, that's a great segue to a couple of <laughs> clips that we're going to look at, and then maybe you can say more, because when we, when we talked about, you know, look, you know, showing some scenes from you know, both of your movies, one, uh, one, I can't remember which one of you proposed it, but you said, why don't we look at two sex scenes? And, uh, <laughs> so, so we're going, <laughs> we're going to look at two sex scenes, one from Body Double, very famous scene, a scene from a film within the film in Body Double. I don't know how many people need Body Double set up for them, but, uh, that might be enough to, to say. And then, um, uh, a sex scene from, a very different kind of sex scene from Greenberg, uh, which is um, a scene between uh, Ben Stiller and, and Greta Gerwig, who's playing the, the personal assistant of the Ben Stiller character's brother, and he's recently relocated to L.A. and been told that she can provide him with anything he needs. So we'll take a look at those uh, two scenes, and then we'll talk some more. Sex a la De Palma and a la Bombeck. I, I, uh, <laughs> people always say sex scenes are horrible to act in and, and not fun to shoot. Uh, is there any secret to doing these things in a memorable way or uh, getting them right on camera, even if it's not fun for the actors? Have a good idea. Just you know, shooting, you know, naked people rolling around the bed together. <laughs> it's not very exciting. We've seen it a billion times. So you have to have a good idea. I think Noah had a very good idea. That's why it worked so well. I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> They're both funny, too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, I guess that's, uh, that's maybe something, you know, also that I think your films have in common. I mean, Noah, your films are, you know, more overtly comedies, but we, we know from experience that they disturb people as well, and especially a movie like Margot at the Wedding seemed to disturb people a lot. Um, and Brian's films are presented as thrillers or suspense films, but often can be very funny, like Passion, on purpose. Um, can you kind of maybe both talk about navigating strange tonal waters like that? How, how do you let the audience know that it's okay to laugh in a thriller or that um, you know, it's okay to feel disturbed in a comedy? I don't know. Well, maybe I, I, in some cases I should do a better job at letting them know. I, 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 I'm not... I'm not really that. I remember when I first show, started showing Squid and the Whale to some people, and I was, um, I, I and I, I had expectations of how certain scenes would play, and I thought that the scenes with the the young boy drinking beer and cursing, I thought, well, that's hilarious. I mean, he's a young, 
what's funnier than a little young kid drinking beer and cursing and nobody was laughing at all and I realized that you know that, uh, that there was something else going on they were involved in the movie in a different way and it was not always so funny it was actually it was something else and and I I think with Squid, Margot, and Greenberg, the I, I really was working in a lot of ways on some kind of instinct. Obviously, I poured over these things and and the, the scripts and the making of them, and and but I also had a kind of feeling about these characters in a way I wanted to make it that I wasn't, you know totally aware of how it was going to come across or what my expectations about it was going to come across were different in some cases than some people may have reacted to them but I think that's kind of cool at the same time I mean I like that I'm, um, uh, with Francis I feel like it's closer the final product is closer to what I kind of imagined it, it would be um, and that's cool too I mean it's a different thing I mean I don't know I mean I think um, I mean, when I've talked to Brian about his movies, I think we share that, and probably a lot of filmmakers do, of that, the sort of outrage that you got over Body Double, mm -hmm. you know, felt in some ways disconnected from what you set out to do. I mean, it's not that you aren't aware of provoking people, but at the same time, it does have a sense of humor. It isn't, you know, it is, and it is sexy, and it is, um, and it is, Cinema and it and but people were really pissed off at you, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in a thriller, also, I mean, you've got to let the audience laugh occasionally because you're using so much stylization that if you don't give them a place to laugh and release the tension, they're going to start laughing at the movie, which is never a good sign. <laughs> so, uh, and I, and it's my sense of humor, basically. I, you know, this is a body double. I look at it now, and I really start laughing uh, because, you know, the idea is that he is in a in a pornographic music video that doesn't exist. I made up this form. You know, the song was Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Where and, are they now? Yeah, exactly. And I said... It's a good song, though. Yeah, it's a good song. And then I got an idea. Well, he's trying to be in the porn film, obviously, to meet Holly Body because she's going to help him solve the crime. So he goes in as an actor. And I thought, well, why don't we have, like, an MTV-type pornographic... <laughs> Uh, video and uh, this is what we came up with. Unfortunately, MTV never showed it <laughs> because I guess it was too pornographic. <laughs> well, one of one of the other things that that we talked about um, is the idea of um, autobiography or some kind of self-representation in your work. And you know, again, I think with Noah's films, it's maybe more obvious because a lot was written about the squid and the whale being inspired by your parents' divorce. Um, uh, you've, you and Greta both talked at the Q&As here about Francis Ha being drawn from things in your own lives. Maybe, Brian, with your films, it's, it's less obvious, but uh, do you consider the films to be quote-unquote personal films, and, and can you maybe talk about um, where we can find you in the films, and then we're going to look at another couple of clips that maybe speak to this issue as well. 
Well, the character in Dress to Kill is, you know, very much me. You know, I'm the guy that's... Not the Michael Caine character. No. <laughs> Though, when I think about it, uh, no, the kid is very much me, you know, the sort of uh, computer nerd. That computer you see, you'll see in the room is... That's, that's my science fair exhibit. That's what I built. I had the art director basically duplicate it. And him running around, you know, recording... Uh, the goings in and out of the psychiatrist's office in order to get a picture of this character he's trying to to identify is very much what I would do. I mean, I followed people. I've taken pictures of them in order to discover some of their terrible secrets. Um, w one thing also maybe worth just also noting about before we get into um, it, about Body Double and, and Greenberg are also very much for both of us, I think we're very much our L.A. movies. You know that I mean, that the the um, embodied double the is it a Neutra the 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 what's the the house where he's house sitting um, yeah. where he's ha yeah yeah and the 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 vision of L.A. It's I mean it it, it I, I hadn't really I don't think I'd been to L.A. when I first saw Body Double, but the, it it really is. I mean, certainly, obviously, the porn business is in L.A., but even beyond that, there, it's a very, it feels very much like Los Angeles. The color feels very L.A. It feels, um, uh, it, 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 it really is very much a character in that movie, the way Philadelphia is in Blowout, or, you know, and, and, um, uh, and that was really what I set out to do with Greenberg, too, was to do um, an, a, a, an L.A. movie. I mean, to do sort of, to, to explore the city. And it's something that I think was very interesting when I was first talking to Brian about his approach to movies. He, I mean, he often has an image in his head that kind of triggers a, a story or, or, or a motivation to make a movie, you know, this movie and not that movie. But he also is very involved in, I mean, all the, his sort of camera work is very location-based. It's like he goes and he really maps out all these places and make sure, you know, I think the location in a lot of cases also is what influences the shot and not the other way around. Do you feel that you did something similar in, in Francis because uh, you actually go so far as to put the physical addresses of certain locations into the film? Uh, so in a way that's continuing sort of what you're talking about with Greenberg, but only, of course, this time for New York. Yeah, and Francis was very much, for me, was, was it was a, a movie, I mean, about New York, I mean, New York is a part of the movie, certainly, but for me, I think it was also about rediscovering New York, both as a person, I was spent more time in LA, and, and, and maybe Greenberg reflects that experience, and I wanted to shoot in New York again, and I wanted to shoot in black and white, and I, uh, I think there's something there's an energy in that movie that is also was coming from me reconnecting to the city and having um, and, and what I really like about the city and, and uh, both old and new. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think real and the, the addresses do reflect that it's 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 about kind of locating you in specific areas and um, but. Uh, you know, I, I think um, uh, well, we can go to these clips and then we can talk more. All right, about so them. portraits 
of the directors as young men in Dress to Kill and The Squid and the Whale? So those are also two mother-son scenes, and Brian, while yours may be a bit more uh, genteel, it certainly bears mentioning that uh, not much later in the film that mother is uh, slashed to death by a deranged transvestite killer. So um, <laughs> I, uh, I wonder if you can maybe just talk a little bit about uh, uh, this idea of putting yourself in your movies and maybe your parents in your movies too and, and the pitfalls that might come with that when those people are still around to, to see the movies and how much, how much your thought goes into that kind of thing. Well, I even made more autobiographical movie called Home Movies when I was teaching at Sarah Lawrence. Uh, so, and I don't think my, either of my parents ever, I don't know if they ever saw it, they never said a thing to me about it. I heard from my parents. <laughs> um, well, I, it, in, I really can relate to the, the, the idea of Brian using, replicating the exact same uh, science fair um, project and, and putting that, that I, I find in, I, it, it, often it's the stuff that people don't necessarily look at as autobiographical or personal that is the most personal, I feel like, in these things. And, um, and I also, for me, I, I, I feel like I try to put as much real stuff into all the movies or things that I have connections to. So it could be a location that I go to a restaurant I like or a street I like, but it all, or clothing or, um, but, but also to bring things from childhood, like the puppets even in Greenberg were actually based on puppets I'd had as a kid that my mom used to play with with me and do voices. And it's a totally unrelated uh, scenario, but it, those puppets meant something to me and I wanted to, to put them in this movie. And so it, it, it kind of, it was like an entryway of some other sort into that scene for me, I think when I was writing it and then later when I was shooting it. Squid is is different because it was it was it was using a lot of real things in a seemingly uh, real um, you know scenario from my life. I mean, there was literal. My parents did get divorced, but I I still think probably the stuff in that movie that's most personal to me or that I'm most feel most connected to is not the the more obvious story stuff um, and. But it, it's really, I guess, for me, it's about just a way to find as many ways to emotionally uh, connect to the material, even if it comes from me. I mean, it's 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 because not everything I write is autobiographical, so it's 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 about finding myself in them. There's actually a really good essay by Leonard Michaels, the writer, about using people's names that he. Um, uh, he, he, he talks about using names of people he actually knows in his books, but they're not, he's not using, it's not those people. It just yeah. feels like a real name to him. And so he uses it and then, then people call him up and say, how did you, you know, but it, it's a, it's a, I thought it's a really articulate essay about 
what that is for a writer, or I think for a filmmaker, of, of bringing personal, the personal into something that's then going to be public. Well, and then, of course, it reminds me of the scene in, in Margot where, uh, where the Nicole Kidman character is, is being interviewed about her book and, and, and the interviewer asks her, uh, you know, about the autobiographical dimension of it, not, not did she have an abusive father, but was the father a portrait of her? So, I, you know, in a way, uh, I guess that, uh, is, that speaks to this idea that sometimes you may be present in your films, not in that direct way. Is there, is there, is there a character that you've written that, that you feel particularly close to that we might not think as being a sort of projection of yourself in one of your films? Jesse Eisenberg's character. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> uh, uh, I, well, in that scene you mentioned in Margot, I think I, I, I was actually, that was, uh, I felt like that a lot when I was being interviewed at certain points about Squid and the Whale. Mm -hmm. I just kept answering the autobiographical stuff and I, I felt, at times I felt overwhelmed by it because I felt like I, I wasn't, um, you know, I wasn't. That's the problem of making a hit. That's <laughs> <laughs> um, My little movie only played two weeks. Nobody asked me any of those questions. Home movies you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm, I'm curious about the casting of, of Keith Gordon as your sort of alter ego. Um, were you looking for somebody who reminded you of yourself, or was it about uh, sort of casting somebody who was the you you wish you had been at that age? Or? Well, we made home movies first, and that's where we found Keith. Uh, and uh, then he was such a good actor yeah. that when I was writing Dress to Kill, I practically wrote the part for him. I mean, you know. Uh, and he, of course, he went on to be quite a good director, director Keith. Uh, it was quite an experience uh, developing him because he was extremely talented. And did, and, but did he, in some way, remind you of yourself at that age, or you just? Well, I don't. I don't think it's that, I don't think you think that way. Yeah. You just, you know, because you you are you're not the best specter on of yourself. Your, you know, I think what happens when people make autobiographical films, uh, the problem is they have the least insight into themselves sometimes. <laughs> and they usually miscast themselves. <laughs> you, know, the, you know, it's like, wh why did you use that person? That's nothing like you. You know, and, and I, I think you have kind of blind spots about that to some extent. I want to go back to something you were talking about earlier, which is the idea of the use of cities in movies and, and talk about um, whether cities and, or specific locations, like, of course, the, the art museum, Philadelphia Art Museum in Dress to Kill, give you ideas for scenes and sequences, or if you tend to come up with an idea for a scene or a sequence and then go look for somewhere to, to set it. Well, first, it always comes from some personal experience. I mean, you know, most of the things that, you know, people think I dream up usually come from some direct experience I've had. In Dress to Kill, when I was at Columbia, my roommate and I used to go down to the Museum of Modern Art and try to pick up girls. Big surprise, you know? <laughs> we, do you like that painting? No, I like it too. 
Would you like to have a cup of coffee? So, you know, <laughs> that's where the sort of pick up at the museum idea came from. Then, then you find a location. We, we wanted to, of course, shoot in the Met, and they, they didn't, wouldn't let us in because they didn't think we were artistic. So we had, I had to go and use the Philadelphia Museum for the interior. Uh, then you have to, and, and I've told this to my film students too, you've got to walk the location. You've got to, and you should physically shoot every angle you're going to use because if you can't take a picture of it and it doesn't look right, don't use it. Uh, so I, you know, haunt the location, I walk all around it, and then when I finally think that it works for what I want to do, and then you can also shoot video too of having, you know, the actors walk in the different places. I mean, this is something you can, if you are hardworking enough, you can test out everything, certainly in the day of the, you know, the digital cameras. You know, there's no excuses for having a crummy location. What I find in so much of what I see all the time is like nobody's thinking about what anything looks like. I mean, you know, New York, you know, helicopter shot of New York. Wow, now there's an idea. <laughs> I mean, I think they did it in the 30s, maybe the 20s. I mean, how many helicopter shots have you seen of Manhattan? You know, or, or a car driving up to a house, you know, like, and, and also in the beginning of movies where they spent, waste all this time of, you know, like coming into the city and you see all the second unit going out there shooting all this, you know, arriving in New York, or arriving in Chicago, where all the titles go across, I think. The audience is, in the beginning of a movie, you're ready for anything. You're all excited. And suddenly you start seeing this terrible travelogue with a lot of titles. <laughs> Drives me crazy. <laughs> well, it, it's it's true. It's very, it's interesting. To, I mean, when you when you watch a movie and the the it, any you can you can do you can start with anything. And I think I mean we did a, a I guess I talked to Joel and Ethan across the street here yeah. about this. And, and but I do think it's it's something that I've talked to we've talked about a lot. And and I think a lot of filmmakers share is that I mean, there is. How you start the movie is is critical, and it's I mean even if it's you know and and how often it feels like there's no reason for however way they're starting you know but um, but then you get like the, you know like the helicopter shot in The Shining which of the car driving and it seems like the scariest thing is about to happen and <laughs> you don't know why you know well that's Stanley Kubrick please. <laughs> He's always the exception to the rule. <laughs> well, we're going to look at not uh, not exactly opening the scenes, but something related to that, which is introducing a character. And we this was something we talked about also. And, and it does so happen that one of these scenes, which is from Margot at the Wedding, is the opening scene of the film. The other is a scene from quite a bit of ways into Carlito's way. It's not technically the the introduction of the Penelope Ann Miller character, because we've seen her in flashback a, a couple of times at that point in the movie, but it's when, uh, it's when she and uh, Al Pacino's character are reunited after he's gotten out of prison. They're seeing each other for the first time in, in many years. And uh, so we'll take a look at those and talk a little bit then about introducing characters. Uh, 
those, uh, there's a couple of things I want to ask about there. I mean, one is uh, the scene from Margot at the Wedding, it seems kind of like a, a consciously designed effort not to give Nicole Kidman a star entrance. And it was uh, really the first time you were working with a, you know, let's say, quote unquote, big movie star like that. Was that something that went into the thinking about that scene? And is that something you think about in general when you're working with a particular actor, whether well-known or, or not, that uh, the, the way that the character would enter a scene may have something to do with that person's reputation or personality or status in the culture? Actually, I didn't think about it with Nicole in, in, in this, but that's interesting hearing it. I, 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 I mean, I was thinking about just that feeling that when I was a kid, when you, like you t take, you think you're taking your parents' hand, and you're somehow you're in a crowd, and you take somebody else's hand, and and that that kind of it's both shock and embarrassment, and 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 that's sort of what I was thinking about when I think when I wrote it, and and then the the idea that to, to start with this sort of notion of that his mother isn't who he thinks she is in some way, or that there's, that, that, that his mother's a stranger, and that that was interesting to me. I, I, I um, although that, now that you ask it, I think about it. on Greenberg, I did think about the fact that I, I was gonna be introducing Ben, because also, I mean, this was very, at the right, at the beginning of the movie, but because Greenberg starts with, the Florence character, Greta's character, and you're with her for a little while, so that Ben is introduced by the other end of a phone call. He, she gets the phone call, and then you cut to, mm -hmm. and we're on the back of his head, and he's looking out the window, and he's concerned because there's people in his pool, and he's yeah. not sure how they're, how they're supposed to be there, and he's nervous, and, and, and then he kind of turns into camera at the end of the call. And I, I thought of that in some ways as like a introducing Greenberg, but also Ben to the movie. And, and Brian, do you, I'm, I'm also wondering in the case of something like Carlito's Way where, you know, it's, as you were saying before, it's a, it's a script someone else wrote, you come in. To what extent, you know, are things like how, how Penelope is going to be introduced in the film, how much of that is in the script, how much of that is you bringing your own ideas, you know, uh, uh, to how that scene is going to play out the way that we, because it seems so much pure cinema and things that might have been a line in the script, uh, you know, uh, exterior ballet studio, and the rest is, is you. Well, again, I'm very specific about locations, and, uh, and I think very uh, hard about how to introduce, you know, the love. This is the first time you actually see Penelope. He's at a cafe, and uh, he's at his cafe, and he sees a girl dancing that looks like Penelope, which starts him thinking about Penelope, which starts that voice over. Uh, and, and all of Carlito's ways, locations are in my neighborhood. I mean, you know, that's... Very uh, smart. Yeah, you know? <laughs> I mean, that location's a block from where I live. I mean, everything in that, uh, on 6th Avenue around 10th Street, I, of course, walk by that studio all the time. I looked in the window, I saw the ballet dancers ballet dancing, and that's where I sort of, you know, because she's a dancer. And then I, and scenes like that, I would talk to David, and then I would give him very specific directions in terms of what I had in mind. Uh, because it's a very romantic setup for her. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but I think that the, the most, 
magical thing about the scene is Al picking up that trash can. Yeah. That's, that's a great actor, you know, just, you know, it's like the glove in, on the waterfront, Brando taking her glove. It's, you know, the great actor, you just see something and picks it up and uses it. And it's magical. That, uh, that scene is beautiful, too. I mean, uh, the, the, and t talk about using a city and geography. Yeah. I mean, the, um, it, I mean, I, I, it so feels like the village, just the, the, that one corner. And you set up everything. By the time you're in close-ups, by the time you're in her close-up dancing and you're in his close-up watching her, you know exactly where you are Exactly, uh, the, the, you know the the, the, the it, it, it's the simplicity of it, and then at the same time, it's got. I mean, it's got so many, much stuff going into it, and the, you know the the music's amazing, and it. But the but by getting it so telling it so simply and straightforwardly, he can do all these other things. And the more I make movies, I feel like, and this is something I really I think nobody's better at it than Brian, is is f figuring out really simple things like geography and taking advantage of the space and making it clear. And, and it sounds kind of simple and kind of maybe not even that interesting, but like there's clarity. I, I feel like with Francis, it was the clearest movie I've made. And then you can do all these other things. And, and I don't know, maybe it's because I didn't go to film school, but I, I, I I, it's something I value more and more, and, and something I feel like I just keep trying to get better at the more I make movies. And can, can you also both talk a little bit about uh, the time in the films? Because, Brian, you're known for doing a lot of uh, long, single-shot uh, sequences. This isn't one of them, but it is a scene put together of fairly sustained shots and, 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 and elaborate choreography of you know, going from across the building into close up on the window, that, that kind of thing. And just you know, the space is really beautifully mapped out in that sequence. Whereas the scene from Margot is really a scene of very quick cuts and short shots and, and it's kind of spatially disorienting. And then in, in Francis, you're playing with longer shots yourself. Um, can you talk about your, your interest in one way versus the other, or maybe changing your attitude towards well, that? Well, I, I've always said over the years, there's the right shot for the, 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 where the camera is in relationship to the actors is as is, is important as what the actress is doing. And, and that's why coverage is like the worst thing in the world for me. They're just arbitrary setting the camera up and just recording what the actors are doing. I'm always trying to maximize uh, the, what the actors are doing. You have to watch the actors very carefully. And you can do, shoot a scene very simply by just seeing how the actors move in a room and just keep the camera, you know, maybe dolly a little to the left or a little to the right. Uh, you first have to see what the actor is doing in the scene and then you've got to sort of figure out the best way to get that on film. Uh, when you're doing elaborate sort of setups like in Carlito, which uh, you're trying to romanticize the moment, you're thinking, as uh, Noah's pointed out, the geography is very important. Everybody, you have to know where everything is. 
this is what drives me crazy, to use another completely different example. In shootouts, you never know where things are. You know, people are shooting and then people are falling and then you go, are they close, are they far, am I in danger? Am I, it just drives me crazy watching this all the time. That's why, you know, like in the Odessa step sequence in, in The Untouchables, you make the choreography bear, there's the staircase, there's Elliot on the balcony, there's the woman bringing the thing up the stairs. So you know where everything is before anybody takes out a gun and starts shooting anybody. So that when you go to these quick cuts, you know where everybody is. You know what the spatial relationship is. And that, and that of course, takes a lot of thought. And again, going to the location, photographing all the angles, and sort of building it up so you get to the crescendo. And you can make those shortcuts at the end. Well, the, the, you're so good. I mean, that's that Odessa Steps scene in, in The Untouchables is a great example of it, because you also let the audience in on the, the anticipation becomes, you make the fun of it learning the space, right. which you do a lot. You, just the way, you have that very kind of great, like, cam deliberate camera where it'll go up and maybe show something and then you'll kind of bring it back that you do a lot. And it's, 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 it's the, the, you're, you're like involving the audience in what you're doing, so then when you actually do something that, that shocks them, it's genuinely shocking because you've established some, the ground rules in such a fair way. And I think that that's, I mean, what make, I mean, the way Brian can, you know, can throw you off in a movie and scare the hell out of you, it's, it is because he's, he's let you in up until this point. Um, I mean, I think that's, it's, uh, I mean, it's something really he does better than anyone. But um, let's say with you know a film like Francis Ha that maybe isn't so much predicated on these kind of surprises or uh, unsettling the audience. Do you do you still sort of think when you start out what is the what is the rhythm of this film? What what you know kind of uh, length of shots is it going to have compared to another film? You know that Margot has a certain kind of biorhythm to it that's different from Francis Ha, for example. Definitely, uh, and it's something that I, I I learn in some ways, or maybe is 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 more intuitive in the script. But when I'm shooting it, it becomes much more deliberate. I'm much more aware of how the story is being told and what the rhythms are. Um, with Francis, it's a lot of um, often sort of montage or quick little bursts of scenes, and then you hit a scene, and it's a much longer. Mm -hmm. um, I, I started that a bit in Greenberg, and both of them um, w were shot very differently from, I mean, they're shot differently from the, each other, but there were Margot and Squid, as we see in these clips. I mean, I was doing, with Squid, I wanted it to have, the idea was a handheld camera, but held as steadily as possible, but, but that you'd feel a kind of handmade uh, human hand in it, and, and that you were in this house, you were with these people, it had a kind of uneasiness maybe to it. Margot was kind of taking that even further and the cutting of Margot was, I was lopping scenes off in the top and the, 
uh, in the end, I was, it was like you were just propelled. And both those, both those movies in different ways, I kept thinking in some ways, it was almost like you just, they keep crashing into each other and it doesn't stop. And, and when it's over, you cut to black and you're, you're done. <laughs> and and, and uh, um, Greenberg is much different. Greenberg is, uh, is more, takes its time. I mean, the opening sequence is a credit sequence. I mean, the, the, even the titles, like I start, just Squid in the Whale just says Squid in the Whale, yeah. then the movie starts. Margaret Wedding just says, yeah. and the movie starts, and all the credits are at the end. And Greenberg, I wanted to like play a good song and let you watch the credits and watch Greta drive and, and see Los Angeles and, and kind of be brought into the movie in a whole other way. And, and a lot of, um, and it shot widescreen, it shot, I mean, it was really like, it was really about the environment mm -hmm. And, and, and the people in the environment. And Francis was kind of even an elaboration on that. It was, um, was uh, it, the, it was really about, as Brian was saying, letting the actors inhabit the space. But that's what I've always done too, is, is I shot list before I go in, but then I kind of don't look at it again. I, I shot list with the DP, then I go to the set when we start shooting and don't look at it, mm -hmm. let the actors explore the space and then figure out how we're gonna shoot it. And, and what about you, Brian? I mean, we look at these famous sequences like the Odessa Steps or even this scene from Carlito's Way and we, we imagine, oh, it must be very elaborately storyboarded in advance and then you stick to that. But uh, is, there, is there more room for changing things on the spot when you're on the set? Yeah, it depends what kind of scene you're doing. If you're doing a sort of a, you know, a, a, an emotional scene between, you know, two actors or three actors or whatever, again, you know, it's like the boardroom scene in the shootout in Scarface. I had like five character actors, you know, and uh, the interesting thing about that is when we first started to shoot it, I first had, had you know, there's this first there's a scene with uh, with uh, uh, Robert Loggia and Al, and they're, and they're just talking across the table. And uh, then we went back, and then we were going to do the shootout in that same space. Well, if you remember, that was just sort of a table, and him on one, uh, the Loggia on one side, and, and Al and Manny on the other. And when we got, and we we started to do the scene, Al suddenly started to. I could see he was very uncomfortable. You've got to watch your actors all the time. Especially, you know, these these ones that have like, you know, they can feel, you know, any kind of emotion or or temperature in the room, and you, I could see something was bothering Al. So, and, and he, he, he would, needless to say, we had rehearsed these scenes to death, uh, and still he was seemingly very uncomfortable. And uh, and then he looked at me and said, "The scene's not working. We got to get, get Oliver down here. We want to work on the scene." So here I am sitting around with a crew of 100 people on a soundstage at Universal. We're a couple of weeks behind schedule, and Al wants to rehearse. And, you know, I'm thinking, oh, my God, oh, God. So we go back, and I, I call up the producer. I say, uh, look, uh, Al's having problems with this scene, and uh, we'll set up, we'll shoot something else while I try to figure out what the problem is. So what... I went back and I was watching uh, what was going on uh, with the rehearsal, and then I figured out by watching Al move around, I could see that the room was too small. It was something as simple as that. You know, he wanted to have that big table so he could move around it. 
you know, and sort of push himself around in the chair, you know, and have, you know, Sosa come toward him, uh, 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 Relogia come toward him. And what we actually did is I said to Nando, the set designer, build it four times bigger. That's what we did. And we went back and shot the scene, you know, three weeks later, it was this huge space because we had all these character actors there and they didn't have enough space to move around. And it seems so simple when I tell you now, but uh, unless you've actually witnessed this stuff happening, it's quite something. I want to take a few questions from the audience for Brian or Noah or both of them, uh, all, all the way in the back. It's a question about making the first mob comedy, Wise Guys. How was that? Not too pleasant. <laughs> the problem was that the studio that gave us the go-ahead, the head of the studio, left the next week. So the next administration inherited the movie, and an administration that inherits a movie from a past administration wants nothing to do with it. So consequently, you're making a movie now that the studio that's financing it wish it wasn't there. If I were smart, I would have taken the money and ran. Uh, but unfortunately, because I you know, like working with Danny DeVito, he's a charming actor and, and a lot of fun to work with, I went on and we finished the movie, but I was constantly fighting the studio, fighting the, the, the producer, uh, and it was a nightmare right till the end, and they, you know, and then they just basically dump it because they're not really interested in it. So uh, I did the best I could, but the lesson to that is, if you don't have any support, bail. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, a question about allotting time for rehearsal, and is there danger of over-rehearsing, or I guess uh, under-rehearsing if you don't have enough time? Uh, well. For me, I mean, in the past, I would kind of, I would go by the actor and the and the part. If I felt, sometimes I'd felt like this this part's a total fit for this actor in a way that's very clear. And in other cases, like with Jeff and Squid and the Whale, it was um, there was more of an exploration in it. And you know, I didn't want to cast the kid uh, to rehearse the kids much at all in that movie, but I felt like. Um, Jeff and I really learned a lot working on it together. Uh, so it really depends. And I, I, um, but on Francis, the last movie I did, I, I, um, I didn't rehearse at all. And I actually didn't show, except for Greta, who was in the whole movie, I didn't show and wrote it with me. I, I, nobody saw the script except for what they were in. And I would give it to them a couple days before they shot because I wanted to try something else. I felt, I was feeling in auditions too, when actors came in, they would over-prepare and in ways that I didn't think were useful. So I also started giving actors, and I continued now to this day, to give actors just in the, they, in the, the waiting room, I have them look at the thing for the first time. And I find the quality of auditions has gotten higher, for me anyway. Um, and so I've now sort of, I, I, I'm more interested in, in that now and is, is, is not, is having kind of more maybe earlier reactions from actors and, and, um, and, and 
exploring it while we make it as opposed to kind of trying to get it on its feet in, in advance and then shoot it later. Yeah, there, there are a couple of things. Uh, normally in auditioning, uh, you're rehearsing the scenes because you have a variety of actors doing it a whole bunch of different ways and you see the scene played badly and you see the scene played beautifully. So you have a very good sense of how the scene will play if you have a long audition process. Uh, and you usually, as Noah says, you rely on the instinct of the actors. Some actors like to rehearse, some actors don't. Uh, the big problem is, is when you have actors who get better on take 15, uh, and, and then there are actors that peak on take two. So if you have, there's a you know, famous story about Frank Sinatra and Edward G. Robinson. Edward G. Robinson, you know, he would be warming up on take 10 or 11. Frank would have, you know, be in his trailer after take two. He's, he's finished, I'm done. Well, what are we doing here? You know, so that's a big problem. And, uh, and again, in that scene in uh, the boardroom with all those character actors, they all have their different clocks. Mm. And you've got to be aware of each one of them. And you've got to watch each one of them. And there was a very funny thing that happened because I was, I was you know, watching Loja, you know, and watching the, 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 the detective and Manny and Chi-Chi and all of these guys and trying to, you know, control this very complicated scene. And suddenly I, I, I look around the room and there's the bodyguard is glaring at me, you know, and, I, and he said, Mr. De Palma, can I speak to you for a moment, please? And I think, holy mackerel. What, what's going on here? So I go off the set and I say, what's, are you having a problem? He says, you haven't talked to me once. Guy doesn't have a line in the scene. <laughs> He's basically the bodyguard. He stands next to Loja. You haven't talked to me once. He wanted to kill me. It was as simple as that. I said, okay, I will keep an eye on you. And I, and I did because you have an explosion on your hands. <laughs> um, yes, uh, there. Uh, this is a question of, do you worry about privacy at all when making uh, personal films, or do you just try to stay true to the emotions of the scene and throw privacy to the wind? When you, when you say privacy, you mean, like, I, don't put, I don't put my address in. Uh, uh, Right, right. Well, I, th I think... Uh, well, that's a problem for every artist, whether you're writing books or, yeah. you know, uh, I mean, how much are you going to reveal if you're doing it your parents or your relationship with your wife or your girlfriend? But, you know, you're an artist. You're trying to tell the truth, so you expose yourself, and uh, yeah, that's the only way you can do it. Yeah, I think... And I think particularly when you first start something, you don't want to censor yourself when it's just you, you know, and your, you know, computer or whatever. It's it's, you should be as frank as possible. And and then I find that by the time, even if I start with something that in my mind is, you know, pretty much how it happened, by the time the script is finished and these things get 
moved around and changed and and then by the time you're shooting it and actors are playing it, it's it's become something totally different. I just repeat, I, I think it's really a question more about making studio films, but that the uh, nowadays, uh, often a release date is announced for a film before a shooting even begins, and well, what pressure does uh, well, that put on the film? Well, that sometimes can work for you, because if they blocked in a release date, you know, you know, I've lived through old eras of you know studio manhandling directors. So uh, if you have a release date, and they worked very well for Carlito's Way, because uh, if they lock you into a release date, and then they and then they say, well. Uh, I'd like to look at the picture. I've got some ideas. You say, well, it's opening in two weeks. There's nothing I can do about it. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and they, I want to preview it. And I say, what's the point? I'm not going to change anything. So that can be very helpful. And it happened with Carlino's Way. The head of the studio was infuriated. You know, basically, I said, what's the point of having a preview? It's going out in two weeks. You've already locked it into X amount of theaters. So that can help you uh, sometimes. I don't think I've ever been... I work kind of, you know, quickly. I really know how to put something together. So I don't think I've ever been harassed by a, a, a release date. Me neither. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, standing, yes. We're going to tell you exactly how to do that. It's a seven-step program. Get a camera. One, get a camera. No, I mean, unlike when I was starting out, where you had to raise thousands of dollars in order to make anything. Now, because you can shoot on high-definition video, you can edit on your computer, you have no excuses. You can put together a film. All you have to do is come up with a script, round up the actors, and start shooting. If you can't do that, figure out something else to do with your life. I think it's, it's really a question about how, how to go through life seeing it through a filmmaker's eyes. Well, you either see it or you don't. I mean, it's like you either have a vision or you see things in terms of shots and, and dialogues between, you know, characters. It just, you know, it's, 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 in the, it, it's in your head. If you don't have that, then I don't know where you're going to start. Um, I, I want to ask you, Brian, sort of in closing, uh, one of the things that I learned about you in the process of getting ready for today is that Noah is not the only young filmmaker who's sort of part of your 
circle these days and that you have you know a lot of filmmakers younger filmmakers who come to you with their scripts with their rough cuts who talk to you during production and i'm i'm just uh <clears throat> i'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about um you know have, having become this kind of mentor figure and what what you get out of that actually as a filmmaker well let's not get carried away here uh <laughs> What happened essentially is when I was starting to make films in the 60s and went out to Hollywood, uh, you know, and there was a group of young directors known as the Movie Brats, you know, with Marty and Spielberg and uh, Francis and George. We all hung out together. We were all at Warner Brothers. We were all making movies, making movies that all bombed, of course, but we were making movies. And we forged a kind of alliance where we would look at each other's rough cuts and help each other with the editing and suggest scripts. And, 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 I, and I, we did that for quite a while until we sort of all went off in our different places. Uh, and I kind of missed that fraternity of directors. Uh, so fortunately, uh, running into uh, Noah, uh, we, we, and Noah's very close to Wes Anderson, and then we have a, another director, uh, Jake Palcho, who's sort of part of our group. It's a very small group, and it's not going to get any bigger. <laughs> so we, we, don't, we don't want any applications. We get along great. So uh, I, you miss the fraternity of directors, because only directors can talk to directors about what's going on and why this isn't working out, and did you see that actor? And look, like, for instance, in, in, in relationship to... Uh, to a passion, I gave my script to my fellow directors and they all read it and uh, they liked the script very much, but I had done this dream sequence. I had done a sort of takeoff on Inception. It's a movie I quite liked. And the whole idea was the phone, the commercial phone was in the safe of the third level dream. And uh, my fellow directors looked at me and said, get rid of that. Right? I think it took three of us, too. Yeah, to... yeah. It was unanimous. When you have unanimous consent, get rid of that. So that's what I did. I came up with a different idea, which is in the movie. Uh, uh, so that, it's very helpful. And you know, we read each other's scripts and give each other suggestions. Uh, and it's very funny, because you know, when I was Edinburgh, in Edinburgh, I was, had dinner with Arthur Penn, and I asked him about the, you know, the group of tele all those directors that came out of television, did they ever hang out together? No. And uh, it's, a, it's a great mistake. It's, you know, uh, so that's what we do. And I, think, and I think for us being with Brian, and, and the, the, it was, there were things we were doing anyway. I mean, Wes and I have been involved to different degrees in, I mean, sometimes officially, but even just as friends reading each other's things. But I think also we, in, in, in some cases, there was almost that feeling of, well, we were going to do these things by ourselves, and then we'd sort of show, you know, and, and, and there is an isolating or isolated experience to being a director. It's both very communal because you have a crew, but there is, it's only you. You're the one on, on the hook, and it's really... Um, and and I think seeing it in the tradition of Brian and 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 the people he came up with and and hearing stories of how they worked on each other's movies and you know didn't like Stephen came in on the set of Scarface and yeah. directed a few 
shoots, sh shoot, shootouts, and uh, the the uh, in the final big battle, and and you know just there. I mean, both it's cool to hear those things too, of course, but it's also uh, I think for us it in some ways opened us up. I mean, I think it gave us a kind of uh, uh, it, it made it less precious in a way. It's like let's just put it on the table and all of us, we can talk about it and help each other. And, you know, certainly, you know, with, with all our movies too, I think that with each movie, there's often there's a sequence or a kind of shot or a kind of, uh, that, that isn't necessarily in your wheelhouse. And mm -hmm. it's like, you know, and we were, um, like Wes had talked about on Moonrise, he, he had this, uh, tornado that hits at the end of that movie. And, you know, he kept he was sort of like, and he came, you know, to Brian and was like, how do you shoot wind? And Brian was like, I'll tell you how to shoot wind. And he gave him the movie Wind. Uh, and, um, uh, but, but Brian said, uh, Brian said something, I mean, we, this is all of us just sitting at dinner, you know, and Brian said, you know, it's something that sounds very simple, but he's like, one thing I learned when you shoot wind is you need to have things in the air because you see them moving because you don't really see wind when you're shooting it. And it sounds kind of, simple but it's actually it, that makes a lot of sense and you know and and uh and I, I think you know and and i think every director finds that when you're with every new movie there's and even things that you've done before you want to try maybe do it in a different way and it's great to have you know this i mean it's great to have brian to, to you know who's 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 seen it all, done it all, <laughs> but but uh, is as invested and interested as as any of us, you know. I mean, I mean, I'm I'm incredibly impressed. I mean, Brian reads everything. He watches everything. He's always knows what, you know. He's just and and he reads one thing and he reads everything about that subject. Or if he sees one movie with an actor, you know, he's watching every Greta Garbo movie and and. Uh, Every mumblecore movie he watched. When he, he said he was thinking of using Greta, I said, "Who Greta? Who's Greta?" And you told me yeah, she that, was in. That was before Greenberg, and then Brian right. went and. and I looked at every mumblecore movie, and I said, "My God, she's really good." Um, so you're watching every Greta Garbo movie and every Greta Gerwig movie. <laughs> <laughs> the G's, I go for the G's. <laughs> well, Noah and Brian, I want to thank you very, very much for this most uh, illuminating <laughs> discussion. Thanks. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Brian Brooks, Nick Kemp, and Michael Oatmark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.com, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.com. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. <laughs>